Creative Babble. You know, I covered Wild Bill on my other podcast, Pretend, years ago, and I never intended to ever reach out to him. But on New Year's Day, he reached out to me, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity. So I started talking to Wild Bill night after night after night, and in the back of my head, I knew that I needed to reach out to the victim's friends and family. So I reached out to Mary Whitmire first, you know, Cheryl Hughes' aunt, and she responded by email, and she said, William Hulbert has been held in a concrete room eating rice and beans for 12 years. He is desperate for attention. I will not contribute to that. Let me know when he is dead. Thanks, Mary. So that didn't go very well, right? She did not seem remotely excited that we were back on this story. So then it made me even more nervous to contact my friend Sharon McConnell Dickerson because I knew that she probably wouldn't receive this news well either. I wanted to let Sharon know that I spoke to him, but I just could not bring myself to call her. I mean, I just dreaded the idea of telling her that I spoke to the man who murdered her friend. But after a few days, I finally got the courage to reach out to Sharon. I told her that I was talking to Wild Bill, and the only request she had was that she wanted to listen to my conversations with him. Not the edited version. She wanted to listen to all of it. So I did what I normally would never do, but I sent the entire interview with William Hobart to Sharon, and she listened to the whole thing every second. I mean, it's hours of recordings, but she called me immediately after she was done listening to it. Yeah, and this was a pretty brutal call. She really let into Javier as far as his tone with Wild Bill, everything about the call. She was really upset with him. And it was very uncomfortable to listen to because, Javier, you got a, you've got a personal relationship with Sharon on top of all this, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, Sharon McConnell Dickerson is not a a subject of our podcast. She was a friend first. I mean, I've known Sharon for years, way before I even started podcasting. So that's why this one seems a little bit more personal to me because I couldn't separate myself as a podcaster and a friend, you know? Yeah, and I mean, her reaction to me was exactly what I was expecting. She's gonna be livid that you're not angry with him on this call or you know during these interviews. She's got an emotional connection. She is looking for someone to hold Wild Bill accountable, right? He murdered somebody that she loved. He murdered other people. And now he's talking to somebody who's going to give him airtime and somebody who's being nice to him. And that was not acceptable to her at all. Yeah, she she really let me have it. I mean, she said something like, okay, you satisfied your curiosity. You got your answers. Now you can delete the whole interview or something like that. And like you said, she took issue with how I conducted the interview. And that's something I didn't even consider when I sent her the file, because I know that I'm playing a role. I'm playing a persona in order to gather information, but that's not the way she heard it. She heard it like I was being this friend of the serial killer and I was being really chummy with him. And she said that that was really lightweight and she couldn't believe that those words came out of my mouth. And she said, she said, I played right into his hand and he is using us. 
Yeah, and I think he is trying to use us. But that's the thing that we went into this knowing that he is going to be trying to manipulate us. And so we're aware of that. So that to me wasn't new. And one of the things she said a number of things that she came back to you with. One of them she kept saying to you is he's a murderer. And just really emphasizing the fact that, that, that he's this this dangerous person. But John, don't you think that, I mean, she has a point. We are giving this guy airtime. That is why he wants to do these interviews. He's using us. He's trying to sell his book, promote his podcast. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it, it is. It's something I'm aware of. I mean, it doesn't bother me because I feel that, you know, if we just gave him a microphone and let him just kind of go off on a rant and let him have control, then I would be very worried about it because that would be him being able to benefit from us. But you're putting him in uncomfortable spots. He's constantly trying to get you off track. He's doing everything he can to run this interview that are, you know, all these interviews that you've done with him. And you're not letting that happen. And we're keeping it focused on what we want to talk about. Uh, and so that, to me, balances the ethical side of it. Well, and even though Sharon really lit into me during that call, towards the end of our conversation, she really started coming around. And even her own natural curiosity started to kick in. And she even started giving me like pointers of when are you going to talk to him next? Maybe you should talk to him about this. Because I feel like she too is missing a piece of the puzzle. She doesn't have all the answers. And this is an opportunity to talk to someone who has all the answers, except this someone is just going to riddle the facts with lies. I mean, that's what he does. He's giving us a lot of lies. I think one of the, the important things about what we're doing and talking to him all the time is that we're talking to him so often that he keeps telling us different versions of the lie. And in between those lies, there's some truth, right? We're, we're seeing his inconsistencies and, and there's a lot of value in that, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and what I think Sharon came to the realization after a couple hours of yelling at you was that, <laughs> <laughs> which is what happened, uh, but that uh, she realized, you know, that she, there are things about how her friend Bo Eisler was killed that she doesn't know. And Bill knows that. And by us talking to him, maybe we can get more information and learn more about what happened to Bo. So I think that there that, you know, she came around to the point that she realized there is some value in talking to Wild Bill. I mean, he went into a lot of details about some of his murders, but not all of them. And specifically Bo Eisler. For some reason, he doesn't want to go into detail about Bo, which makes us want to know even more. So we're going to keep drilling him on this and we're going to try to get some answers. Yeah. I'm John Taylor with the Twisted Podcast. And I'm Javier Leva with the Pretend Podcast. And this is Criminal Conduct Season 3, An American Serial Killer in Paradise. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
We wanted to better understand Wild Bill, so we sent the raw audio to a mental health professional to analyze. My name is Jan Canty, and I am a psychologist. I've been a psychologist for over three decades. I was born, raised, educated, and widowed in Detroit. I have come to the experience of homicide and its aftermath, both professionally and personally, after the murder of my husband. In 1985, Jan Canty's husband's body was discovered scattered across the state of Michigan. The killer bludgeoned her husband to death before beheading him. You could personally sympathize with, with someone like Sharon because you've been on that side. It's comple- completely understandable. As you were describing it, I was trying to put myself in her shoes and imagining it if, if instead of Wild Bill, you were speaking about the murderer of my spouse. And I would have probably reacted similarly in the sense that we don't want to give them any more platform than they have. We are sick of the attention that they get and the interest shown to them. It feels as if it's a stab in the back, like you're putting the microphone in the spotlight, not where it belongs. She had a problem with how chummy I was with him. She says that I was acting like I was his buddy. I listened to your interview with him and having been in the situation and, and knowing you, I would not describe you as being his buddy. Again, I would say that you were trying to speak his language in order to accomplish a goal that you had in your mind. It's not unlike a foreign language. You have to speak his language or you're not going to get anywhere. And if if you approached him as a victim and lashed out, that would be the end of the conversation. He would have hung up and that would be the end of the story. So you have to make some calculated risks as you're speaking with him. But I did not. I saw you as more like forced into the role and and having to bite your tongue more times than you would probably want to in order to get uh, the information you sought. So you were between a rock and a hard place because in interviewing him, you know that you are going to irritate Sharon at the same time, accusations and and telling him what you really think, you're not going to get anywhere. And I ask myself this question a lot. I mean, I think this is what's fascinating about this season is that, you know, in season one, John and I were investigating the deaths of two people in St. Augustine, and we felt like we were moving the ball forward. We were trying to get law enforcement to get interested in the case again. But when I look at this season, I ask myself, well, why now? Like, what's the value of telling this story? And, and I, I grapple with that. Well, one of the things that jumps at me immediately that's a value in telling the story is it underscores the myth that is so prevalent that's closure that the idea that well once they're arrested it's game's over end of story move on to the next story the word closure means it is concluded and there is no conclusion with homicide there's still more to the story and there will be till he takes his last breath so it's like a follow-up this no story has no ending because homicide stories don't have an ending look at sharon she's still being impacted by it and he's still performing in prison so that's the value of underscoring that i think is to remind us that it isn't over 
I don't know. I'm naturally curious. And, and I think that the listeners who are listening right now, if they're still listening, that means they are curious too. There's this grotesque attraction to people like William Hobart. I, I think what you're getting at here is why do, why do we have this fascination? Is there a value right. in paying attention to people like him? And the answer is complex. There is no one reason, but I will offer some probabilities here. And one is that I think the public at large can be fascinated with serial killers in the way that kids are attracted to monster movies or years and years ago, people went to public hangings in the middle ages. We, we, and, and even now when you drive by a horrific car accident, people rubberneck. I, I think there is this sense that by looking at this, we will learn more about our own safety, our own vulnerabilities and build an armor. But I don't think that's what really happens. I think that's the hope, but I don't think that's what happens. I think another reason is it's like an adrenaline rush, because what concerns me is that we are losing our ability to be appalled. My approach in interviewing people like William Hulbert is that I I'm interviewing him much like I interview other con artists when I talk to them on my other show is that I, I not only try to see the world through their eyes, but I like to have them manipulate me a little bit so that they could reel me in just to see that process so that people could listen to that process of, of manipulation and deceit. And, and did you sense a lot of that when, when you were listening to the interview? I sensed you having a foot on both sides, that you did not lose your grip and you weren't fooled by his reeling you in. You knew what you were doing, but you allowed it so that you could experience it and understand it better. It's like as a psychologist, for example, if I'm interviewing somebody who's schizophrenic and I want to understand their frame of reference and they say, as I had a patient tell me one time that the fluorescent lights were poisoning her and causing cancer in her brain. If I'm going to understand that delusion, I have to kind of look at it from her point of view. And so I would ask more questions. I wouldn't challenge her and say, that's ridiculous. Where's the proof for that? But I would allow her to explain it to me and, and to an outsider. Perhaps it looked like I was entering her field of reference and buying into it, but I'm not. It's more like a way of just looking at it from their point of view to understand it more closely. That's the only way you're going to get more information, because if you stay objective and outside and firmly planted in your own frame of reference, you're, that's all you're going to understand. And it, you're not going to have a very rich interview. You know, we, we talked about William Hubbard being a sociopath and right. not all not all sociopaths are serial killers. Correct. What is the value of talking to somebody like that and trying to understand them? What I think the value for the consumer is that they really appreciate the fact that these people are out there, that anyone can be reeled in. I don't care how experienced you are, given the right circumstances, almost anybody is vulnerable to their BS. And it just hopefully ups our awareness so that our default is not everybody's worthy of, of apologies and, and forgiveness. And we can trust people. People treat us like we treat them. That is so not true. And, and so if, if it, these kind of interviews make people step back a little bit and be a little bit more discerning who they trust and listen to their gut instincts more. I think it's very valuable. When we come back, we're going to talk to a former FBI profiler who worked on the Golden State Killer case. 
I want to be really clear that I don't feel like a serial killer. You know, and 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 when I think of the word serial killer or the, of, the, of a person who's a serial killer, I think of a guy like Ted Bundy or or a person who who does things for compulsion or emotional needs, emotional reasons. And and I myself, I, I'm not a person who has any bloodlust. <laughs> these things, these terrible things I did, I did, you know, um, starting about 15 years ago. And 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 I was just a heartless, cold-blooded asshole who hurt and killed people for money. You know, I don't have a compulsion to kill people or a desire necessarily to do that. To me, it's a frightening thing to be considered as a serial killer, like someone who's damaged and strange. So, John, do you think William Hulbert is a serial killer? So when we first started this uh, investigation, this podcast, what I thought was he's more like a mafia hitman or somebody that belongs to a gang and just happens to kill people as part of the violence of being in, in, in that environment. Uh, you know, he's killing people to make money. But the more we've kind of dug into this, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, technically he does fit the definition of a serial killer because there is a cooling off period. The phrase serial killer was coined by the FBI. And the actual definition, like you said, is very, very broad. I mean, a serial murderer by definition is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. I mean, that could be anyone from Ted Bundy to James Bond. But for me, you know, there's a sexual component to it. There's some kind of gratification that needs to come from the killing. And uh, there's certainly hints of that in, in, in as far as what he's done. I mean, we're going to get into a little more. But, you know, he may have some kind of gratification or enjoyment that comes from killing. Yeah. I mean, he says that his only motive is money, right? But at the end of the day, he actually didn't make that much money from his killing. So maybe the thrill is ripping people off and killing them. I don't know. It's not sexual, but it's some sort of excitement that he's getting from this, right? Yeah, like a high or something that he gets from being able to trick people. Uh, you know, it's just a bigger con because he's able to convince them that, you know, to go out into the jungle or to do something he wants them to do so that he's able to get them in a position of weakness so he can kill them. Well, and you know, I start thinking about his earlier crimes where he's just ripping people off, ripping people out of their homes or or stealing that, um, you know, that th those construction equipment and selling it. You know, after a while, maybe that just doesn't do the trick anymore. That does not get him off, you know, so he had to step it up somehow. And the way he stepped it up was stealing people's property and killing them. I think the money motive is an interesting aspect of this. I think there's definitely a financial motive to the killings, but I think it's just more complicated than that. I think that there, there's more to why he was killing these people. Um, and you pointed out that some of these killings, he didn't seem to get a lot of money from them. So it's you know, there's, there's some complications with Wild Bill, and it's hard to just kind of put him into a small box as far as describing him. So I spoke with retired FBI agent Julia Cowley. She's an experienced behavioral analyst and FBI profiler. We wanted to get her take on serial killers. Kind of talk about how you see it, the difference between a mass murderer and a serial killer. A mass murderer, they tend to kill like a bunch of people in one event at the same time. That's a mass murderer. So for example, Timothy McVeigh and a lot of times 
those mass murderers don't have necessarily a personal connection to their victims. They may the, the victims may be anonymous. They just may be targeting a venue where they'll get a lot of victims. So that that is a mass murder. Serial killers, it's different. They kill and they have what we call like a cooling off period in between their killings. Say someone who is more like a, a hitman for organized crime versus a serial killer. So they do have the cooling off period, but they don't have many of the other characteristics that we would traditionally associate with a serial killer. I mean, you know, the, the killing for you're a hitman for the mafia or the mob or, or any kind of drug organization, sort of that personal need is not there. You're doing it for work, for business. There isn't necessarily any kind of personal or ritualistic behavior. I do think that there could potentially be hitmen who really are serial killers at heart. They want to kill. And that's why they enter the business and it's easy for them. And then with the serial killers, there tends to be more of a personal motive involved that could be and usually is sexually motivated. And whereas mob hitmen may be motivated by the thrill of it, but again, not really a sexual component to that kind of a serial killer. Talk a little bit more about the ritualistic aspect or the personal side of the, with the serial killers. So with serial killers, we have like, you have, or any killer, you have MO, the modus operandi, or, or how they commit the crime. The ritualistic part is the personal part, the real reason that they're committing the crime. Those motives can be you know, different depending on that particular killer. So, for example, uh, a case I'm very familiar with, the Golden State Killer, Joe D'Angelo. He engaged in a pattern of ransacking the homes, and he did this every time. And he did it before he engaged in any sexual violence against the victims. Some people might think, well, that's practical. He's ransacking because he's looking for things to steal. But it really was something that he needed to do because it was, I guess, sexually gratifying to him. And that is the ritualistic part of it. And so it, it fulfills a personal need. The MO is practical. The ritual is the personal. And I've heard kind of that that sexual component to the crimes of a serial killer. However, is do you define it the sexual aspect in the traditional sense, or is it much broader? Much broader. So yeah, it, it's not. They're not obviously sexual, and it's not always what we would consider traditional. Crime can be sexual in nature, and no sexual assault could take place. So one of the things with Wild Bill is there are kind of some weird things about this case. And one of them is that it's been reported that police found gold teeth on Wild Bill's nightstand. And there's a couple ways to look at that, but that certainly could be something that's more ritualistic. That if that's the reason why those teeth were there, that certainly puts uh, Wild Bill in a different category. There's reports that you would remove the filling of your victim's teeth. Yeah, I read that one too. That was made in a statement by the by by the head of the Dehota. Returning to that, like that's just fantasy from hell. I mean, like that's just madness. Never happened. Um, they they also said that there were ghosts in my house and that we were Satan worshippers. And I mean, like I'm like, dude. 
I don't know. I mean, sir, did you bring a magician in or a, a sorcerer in to find out if there were ghosts in the house? I mean, well, I don't know why there would be any ghosts in the house. Nobody's ever killed in the house. And so, yeah, but, but yeah. I mean, anyway, so so the, going back to the, the thing about just, just returning back to the the the, 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 the gold thing. I mean, like, where are these gold teeth that I removed? Where are they? Well, Can the officials officials said that they found a jar, a glass jar with the gold teeth. These are the officials who are also the ones that said that they found ghosts in my house and that we were worshiping Satan. So, all right. So, so that so you, that is completely false. I I don't know one way or the other. I, yeah, I've never seen bullshit. I mean, just like out of like 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 they, they just pull this stuff out of the air. Like the story's bad enough already. I don't really know why they have to make shit up. Look, man, I was a bad guy. You know, I hurt people and because it made me money. That's it. Right. But but like being sadistic about it and 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 like enjoying torturing people. Shit, never, none of that should ever happen. But all of tying somebody up and tearing their teeth out or something is like scary to me. I wouldn't want to do that. I'm I'm too much of a coward to do something like that. I think. Wild Bill failed to answer your question. He said never happened. That was the closest he got to a denial here. I did speak to a reporter down in Panama who did say that the police found the gold teeth on Wild Bill's nightstand. He said that is confirmed. So it's kind of is Wild Bill being deceptive with us about these gold teeth or is the information that we've been given wrong? And did you ask the reporter if they did any DNA testing on the teeth to see who it belonged to and if, in fact, it was one of Wild Bill's victims? I did. And what he said is that once they got the confession from Wild Bill, that they're not going to go do the DNA testing because they just have limited resources. And he was kind of like, what's the point? We've got the confession. We don't need that information. And down there, they just they're not going to go the extra mile to kind of confirm things. And, you know, what's really hard about this case is that it takes place, the story takes place in a third world country, and we can't really get any government documents or any information to confirm the gold teeth. Were you able to find anything else about the gold teeth that's worth talking about? Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of two parts of this, right? One, it could be that it's ritualistic or it has something to do that he keeps them because they're from the victim. The other thing is that he did it for the money. And I did go out to a pawn shop and I talked to them about purchasing gold teeth or gold crowns. And what the, what the owner told me was that they pay for the gold tooth or the gold crown based on the amount of gold and the price of gold at the time. He said, though, because most gold teeth, they don't have a lot of gold in them because gold is soft. And so you have to have other materials within them. However, when I pushed him hard on it, he said that, you know, it kind of depends on those factors. But in general, somebody may get twenty five dollars for a crown or tooth. And, And the interesting thing is that it's like, well, it's not worth it. But what he said is people come in here all the time and they sell gold teeth. So there are people that that will do that for money. So, you know, if, if Wild Bill didn't have a lot of information on what he would get, you know, that's certainly something I could have seen him doing is that he that's another way for him to get money. So, John, what do you think happened here? I mean, do you think that if let's say let's just imagine that these are the victim's teeth. Do you think that he pulled them out while they were alive or after they died? I mean, that's the scary thing. If, they, if they're the victim's teeth, then you're right. One way or another, Wild Bill pulled them out of their mouth. Uh, but it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know. It could have been either one. But regardless, that would mean that he did go in with pliers or something similar and rip those gold teeth or gold crowns out of the victim's mouths. So we talked to Julia Cowley about this. Talk about the idea of serial killers having souvenirs and, and why they do that. 
So most killers, most serial killers don't take souvenirs, but some do. There are some very famous serial killers and like Dennis Rader, who was also known as BTK. He took souvenirs and he kept them in a box and he would like to go back and look at them and sort of relive the crimes that he had committed. And not only that, he ended up sending the soup, some of the souvenirs to the police department to taunt them, the victim's identification, for example, which was ended up being his downfall. Most serial killers are not necessarily taking um, trophies. That's kind of a myth. Some do, most don't. <laughs> One of the positives of, of Javier, of you going back to Wild Bill on constantly and asking him more questions and texting with him is that he got very comfortable with you and he, things kind of went off script. And one of the things that he did is he he slipped and he got upset talking about an article that was written about him and he ended up threatening to physically harm the journalist who wrote the article. Yeah, that slip of the tongue was terrifying because... When you and I are angry, we might say, I could effing kill you, but it's just a figure of speech, right? When he says it, I mean, come on, it is blood curdling. Yeah, it takes on a whole other meaning with him saying it. Though he just appeared to be upset and speaking off the cuff, we took this threat seriously and we did contact the journalist and let her know. When we return, we're going to talk about Wild Bill's enemies, and it's a pretty long list. See who made it and who didn't. That's after the break. How do serial killers normally select their victims? I mean, there's kind of a, a process that everyone goes through. Anyone who's going to commit a crime against another person it's based on desirability, availability, vulnerability. And every single person who is going to pick a victim, no matter what the crime is, is, is evaluating these things. It, it seems like many serial killers select strangers as their victims. Is that based on the idea that they don't want to get caught or is there something more intricate to it? Well, I think... Partially, it's a practical consideration. You, if you choose a victim that you have no connection to, that makes it harder to catch you. It, it is a myth. I mean, most serial killers, they, they don't want to get caught and they're trying not to get caught. Choosing stranger victims makes it more likely that they'll get away with it and then they'll be able to do it again. You know, we use the term sociopath and psychopath interchangeably. The clinical term used today is antisocial personality disorder. We wanted to get Jan Canty's point of view on this. Let's talk about the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. You have these pop psych terms of sociopath and psychopath. They're not re officially recognized by the mental health community, but they do have some value in helping to differentiate between the two. And they are not the same, but they both share the traits of antisocial personality disorder, which means somebody that, you know, just goes against the rules of the society without care and they have no empathy and they're opportunists. 
Jan Canty describes psychopaths as cold-hearted killers. They have no guilt, no remorse. They're like an interspecies predator. (laughs) And they suck the energy out of people and the life in the room. Like she said, these terms are shaped by modern culture. According to her, William Holbert is a sociopath. And the reason I say that is because he tends to like to be the life of the party. He draws attention. He has relationships that are more than one night stands. He is loud and proud and and really proud of it. He likes to be noticed. He makes sure he's noticed. And he's impulsive and he's more he's more given to fits of anger. You, you can you can prod him and get a reaction out of him by saying or doing something that he objects to, as opposed to a psychopath. He'll he'll remember it. Believe me, he'll notice and remember it, but he'll might save it for later. He might not be so impulsively reactive. I tend to ascribe to the definition from John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test, where it's just kind of psychopath and sociopath are one and the same. I mean, regardless, they both lack empathy and under the right circumstances, either one can be very dangerous. So we established that Wild Bill most likely has an antisocial personality disorder. And in my experience, so do con men. I mean, most con men are not violent, but some are. We asked former FBI profiler Julia Cowley about this. Have you had any experience or seen a lot of individuals who are committing white collar crimes? So they're committing frauds, scams, transitioning from that type of crime into a repeat murderer. Um, Myself and one of my former colleagues actually were white collar agents, field agents in the Bureau. And then when we were brought into BAU, part of our research was looking at high level white collar offenders. And what we found is that there are a lot of similar characteristics between these very high level white collar offenders and violent serial murderers. This sort of, you know, their crimes are obviously very different, but there are some personality traits and characteristics that they have in common. Most of that revolving around being self-centered, lack of empathy, no conscience, no remorse. I mean, it's really hard to look someone in the eye and, and take all their life savings and really feel, you know, feel bad about that. While Bill started out as a fraudster, and then transitioned into killing people his according to him for money. Well, that doesn't that's not really not surprising because serial sexual murders, they're they're not just murderers. I mean, they they are opportunists. They they can commit other crimes. Like for example, Mark Twitchell, he was the guy kind of known as the Dexter killer, aspiring filmmaker up in Canada, and then he lures men to his garage where he set it up like Dexter did on the TV show and he kills him. He was defrauding some of his close friends and relatives, getting them to invest in his supposed movie project. And he was just stealing the money and living off of it. These killers are, are opportunists. So it, oftentimes this is not the only type of crime they're engaged in. And they may very well be engaged in white collar crime. When you talk to Bill, he likes to minimize his crimes. He's always comparing himself to much more ruthless killers and say, you see, I'm not as bad as those guys. Those guys are sick, but not me. I think when Holbert tries to say I'm not that kind of guy, I think he's got a couple motives behind it. One is he wants to appear 
somehow more cleansed or more uh, ethical or, or likable or not so sick as, as Ted Bundy is. So he separates himself that way. He buys also into this notion of what Hollywood has said. You don't need a psychology degree to categorize William Holbert as a narcissist. But if you ask him, he downplays any negative aspects of his personality. Going back to the narcissism thing, you know, you, you quote in your book, you said, you never forget going down those steps of the small plane chained and seeing the sea of cameras. And, you know, you've watched this footage many times. And, and you say that when the camera's on your face, that you feel like you're the most powerful man in the room. I mean, that sounds like a narcissistic person to me. Well, at the time, I didn't know what to do, man. But... But I'm Bill, man. I ain't walking through no crowd of people with my head held. I mean, the cops are like, here, put this towel over your head. And fuck you, man. I'm Bill. I'm, I mean, if it's a if I'm a narcissist, well, I'm a narcissist. But I'm walking through the crowd, man. I, I'm, I'm Bill. I'm not going to put my put my head down. The disconnect is that most people would be shameful after being caught for the crime you committed. And then you seem proud. I certainly felt that, that way. I mean, inside, inside, I certainly felt that way. I won't, no, don't, don't think it's not true. I certainly felt like, you know, like, how horrible is this? But um, I think that the defense, like, I'm not going to let them see me sweat. I never let anybody see you sweat. I stole the show, you know what I mean? And that was when, that was when the fame really grabbed on. I mean, they made a song about me and they had a special dance about me on TV. And they had a segment, they have like a Saturday Night Live special show here called La Cascara. And they had like, they had like a segment every week for like three months, uh, you know, about what's Wild Bill doing in prison and stuff. And so, so, I mean, it was like nuts. I was the most famous man in Panama for a year. Every day for one year, they had a segment on TV about me for 15 minutes, national television. How do you feel about the fact that you, you were infamous in Panama, but virtually unknown in the United States? Fortunate. I was fortunate because I was really fortunate because I've got kids and stuff, some family, and I don't want to talk much about them, you know. But they were growing up at the time, and that's one of the reasons I've kept my mouth shut for ten years. They're all grown now and have their own lives. This fame thing, and it's it seems to be going pretty well. Every girl in family wants to fuck me, and that's true. And but apart from that, um, there wasn't anything good that came of it. I agree with Wild Bill's philosophy of never letting them see you sweat. But he thrived off the infamy way too much. You said you underwent several psychological exams and and they did classify you as having narcissism. Would you agree with that? They sent me a doctor, a lady doctor from from England. They brought her over and I did like this huge psychological exam for like a week with her, like five or six days talking to her. And she gave me a clean bill of mental health except for like, certain narcissistic tendencies that, that she said that fall within the range of normals. It would be very difficult to say that a person who's willing to take somebody else's life for financial gain is not a narcissist. How could you possibly make that statement? You know what I mean? I also don't believe that narcissism, or at least the kind that I had, was is something that you can't recover from. I mean, I have busted my ass to try to become a better person. I mean, it's taken a lot of work. So what I found, Wild Bill scored a 31 out of 40 on the hair psychopathy checklist. And the cutoff for being a psychopath or sociopath is 30. 
So, John, what did this psychological write-up actually say about him? Yeah, let me just read a segment from it so you kind of hear it, because I think they did a really good job of summing up Wild Bill. Quote, Mr. Holbert likes talking and entertaining in conversation. He expresses himself very well, and it is easy to establish rapport with him. The ease with which Mr. Holbert created a dual reality as regards to everything around him is surprising and explains why his crimes were not discovered sooner. Mr. Holbert made no mention whatsoever of the suffering he caused to his victims or their families. There's no genuine empathy for his victims. Mr. Holbert describes a limited range of emotions. He is able to communicate extreme emotional experiences, but despite his eloquence, he is unable to describe intermediate emotions. Unquote. And John, while reading the book, I mean, immediately, I mean, before the book even starts, in the acknowledgement section, he has a whole section where he lists his enemies one by one. I mean, it takes up almost an entire page. Yeah. And one of the things that he talks about is just basically anybody he thinks that uh, got in his way, somebody that just did something that irked him. And I, I feel like somebody who has killed repeatedly, an enemies list is beyond inappropriate. Yeah. And he has all types of people on this list. Like you said, people who he interacted with in prison, they're like Hispanic names. But then there are some familiar names, like Nick Foster, the author of the book, The Jolly Roger Social Club, which we based a lot of our research on, and Don Winner, who is a Panamanian reporter. Yeah, and also just people that he came into contact with that, um, you know, it's people that have spoken poorly of him. Anybody that hasn't kind of been 100% on his side seems to be on this uh, enemies list. I, yeah, I think, you know, if he put, comes up with a new enemies list, I think we're going to uh, have to consider whether we'll be on that list or not. A special thanks to our executive producer, AdvertiseCast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body, during our intro. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, find us on social media at CriminalCon. And please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Make sure to listen to our other shows. John Taylor hosts the Twisted Podcast, and I, Javier Leva, host the Pretend Podcast. Also check out FBI profiler Julia Cowley's new podcast. It's called The Console. It's a true crime podcast where she and other FBI profilers talk about behaviors of criminals. When you get a chance, check it out. And you can find Jan Canty on TikTok. She also has a podcast titled The Domino Effect of Murder, where she interviews family members of victims of homicide. She also has a memoir about her husband's murder titled A Life Divided. We'll have links to both Julia Cowley's and Jan Canty's podcast in the show notes. Creative power.